Hi everyone, welcome to Resistance Recovery. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. everybody and I am really been looking forward to this interview for a long time. I am speaking with Lisa McCullough who is professor of philosophy Cal State Dominguez Hills. Did I get that right? Good. And she is the author of this book which I highly recommend The Religious Philosophy of Simone Day. Um, as you've probably noticed I post quite a bit of or quite a few quotes and articles about Simone. So this is going to give us a chance to really unpack this. And so before we start, um, maybe just a little bit about yourself. Who is Lisa? Oh, that's a less interesting topic. But uh, I was born in Berkeley, California. And um, I was a faculty brat. My father was a uh, graduate student when I was born and later professor of philosophy at University of Michigan. So I spent many years in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Then uh, eventually my father replaced his own advisor at uh, California, sorry, University of California, Berkeley. And I ended up going to UC Santa Cruz um, for my bachelor degree. Um, became interested in those years in religious thought particularly modern Christian thought, um, mainly through the figure of Kierkegaard. Uh, Kierkegaard grabbed me and fascinated me and drew me in. And um, this took me to a completely unexpected direction. I did not ever <laughs> honor Christian ideas or uh, religious ideas of any kind. So it was a, a huge turning point for me to discover Kierkegaard and Soon after that, I was in a used bookstore in Santa Cruz, and I saw a title. This was Logos Bookstore, a great bookstore in Santa Cruz. And I saw a title, Waiting for God. And I mean, I just like, it was like a magnet. I, I took the book. I already had this feeling. <laughs> and... Um, and indeed, I read a few paragraphs, bought the book, and ended up uh, totally enthralled with Simone Weil as well as Kierkegaard. It was like um, both together. And so I resolved to go on and study religious thought in graduate school. I went to Harvard Divinity School for a two-year master's program, completed that, and then ended up going to the University of Chicago for my PhD in systematic theology with uh, David Tracy as my advisor. Mm, wow. And then I taught um, at a couple of colleges um, at Hanover College in Indiana and at Muhlenberg College in um, Pennsylvania. And then I made a radical decision to <clears throat> leave academia for many years. Um, and I was looking for life, not for um, academia. <laughs> Not to say that the two can't be combined. Um, and I ended up just coming back to academia, teaching philosophy at this school presently. 
um, and very happy there. I really like the university and my students. Um, and I, um, I find it very stimulating to be continually um, getting to the fundaments as you do in teaching. You, you really have to look at the fundaments of any thinker, any position, any book um, to be able to teach it responsibly. And um, I, I really love that exercise. And um, I love the, this, when students get excited by those fundamental ideas, as young people tend to do. Mm. Um, they, they really are hungry for it. And uh, so I enjoy the teaching a lot more than I did at first. When I, when I ended up leaving academia, it was partly because I hadn't found my, my uh, style or or approach as a teacher. And maybe it was just that I needed more life experience before I, I could teach sincerely, something like that. Was the religious philosophy of Simone Weil written in the intervening years in between academic stints? It was actually my doctoral dissertation uh, and uh, later revised, much later revised as a book. I kind of stuck it in the uh, drawer, so to speak, my, the metaphorical desk drawer and left it there uh, knowing that I really wanted to publish it one day, but um, I was waiting for the right moment and where I felt that um, uh, the time of my life was right to really come back and, and um, make it what I thought it could be. Um, it was, there were, there were a lot of rough aspects to it as first written. Well, thank you. Let's, um, let's turn to Simone. Maybe introduce her to the audience, a little biographical sketch for those who don't know her. She was born in 1909. Um, she was the one of two children born to a secular Jewish couple who uh, lived in Paris. And her, uh, Simone's elder brother, um, is a famous 20th century mathematician. I mean, he's a very important mathematician. And um, she grew up in a way in his shadow for a, a couple of reasons. One, because he was so obviously brilliant. He was older, older by two years. He was obviously brilliant and able to shine being older um, and she ended up in some ways in his shadow. Also, she was treated like a little girl. And she resented that being the, he was the genius and she was the beauty. And she uh, suffered from that, I think, quite a bit in her youth. Um, but that partly helped make her who she was to be. Um, it partly helped define Simone Weil to herself, I think, that um, there's a certain way in which she chose very early to be the one who is nothing, who is a nobody. Uh, this is something that um, Emily Dickinson writes in one of her poems, um, I'm a nobody, are you a nobody too? And she accepted very young that we are all a, no a nothing, a nobody. <laughs> and you know, I think that her being in the shadow of her brother uh, brought that to the fore early. Um, she was also very responsive to human suffering very young. Um, and clearly she was one of those exceptional 
people, I don't mean necessarily exceptional that they stand out as famous or genius, but exceptional in the sense that she's in that 5% of people who just are not conventional. They're just not going to live a life like everybody else, whether it's because they're born with a deformity of some kind or they're born with a talent or they're born with, you know, they're somehow an outsider. They lie on the fringe of, of what's uh, conventional and typical. Um, and she embraced that in her life and she lived a life completely characterized by this individuality, uh, this maverick personality. I'm sure she was difficult to be friends with, difficult to have as a daughter, but on the other hand, um, those who really understood her and um, appreciated her found her just um, an incredible presence in their lives, uh, unforgettable and, um, and transformative friend to have. So um, you had to be capable of Simone Bay. <laughs> you had to be capable of, of um, accepting the, 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 the difficult side in order to get all that was um, so powerful about her. Um, she lived a very short life. She died at age 34 in 1943. And um, it wasn't actually a violent death as it might have been, as it was for millions in that era in the, during World War II. Uh, but she was, um, during the Vichy era, she was a um, refugee in the south of France from Paris with her parents. They um, sailed to the United States and there she spent six months in living in Harlem, living in uh, New York City, or rather, um, yeah, I think roughly the Harlem neighborhood. And uh, then she came back to Europe um, to live in London and work with the free French uh, movement, the French resistance movement there. Uh, and it was there that she was so ill with um, tuberculosis and malnutrition and seemingly some kind of spiritual ailment um, of feeling that she had exhausted her options and um, she basically died of exhaustion, malnutrition, tuberculosis, and frustration, it seems. Um, some people like to read her death as a kind of anorexic self-annihilation uh, mm -hmm. because she refused nutrition, but I tend to think that that's um, not the right word to use, uh, not the right notion. Um, clearly she lived with great force and commitment and somehow she let herself die uh, as part of that whole, the whole that was her life. And I just don't think we can easily judge it or know or specify what she died of. That's sort of the biography in a quick round. Yeah. So her, her vision of the human being, our dilemmas, our, how we find ourselves thrown into the world. Yes, we are thrown into the world. Of course, that's Heideggerian language. Um, she doesn't actually use that language, but we are born into the world. And she understands um, the human being as um, a extremely limited, fragile 
and conditional existent in a world that is constituted by force. Um, you know, the material world um, is a world in which, a realm in which uh, forces um, interact and collide. Um, and some of those forces are what bring us into being and allow us to exist. You know, it's, um, it's the sun on the soil and the, the water from the sky that allows us to exist because we need the plants to, for food. Um, we breathe air that's a consequence of various forces at work. Um, so our lives are completely conditional. We are conditioned beings. And what this means is um, there are very real limits to our power. We are uh, uh, radically vulnerable. Those conditions change suddenly and you're gone. You're, you're uh, destroyed. And um, this is um, a, an aspect of human ex existence that we tend to resist. We tend to lie to about ourselves. We don't want to accept the limits of our power. We don't want to accept that we are destined for death. We don't want to accept um, that um, we're, we're going to come to an end. Um, and all of our existence is, in a sense, to her, a lie. It's, a, it's an illusion. Uh, we create around ourselves this illusion of, of power and uh, ability and um, even in the way as a, as, a, um, as a species, we pursue technologies and the power of technologies. It's all to fend off the f simple fact of death and the, the full reality of our limitations. Um, we're always trying to defy uh, those limitations and uh, extend our power. Um, and so she's um, interested in uh, facing the reality of our conditional nature. And um, it's actually not a nature, it's a condition existence. Mm -hmm. um, and and um, she's a realist through and through, if you ask me. I think some people would not agree. Uh, I think she's um, only interested in characterizing what she understands to be reality. And that includes religious realities that are not visible, and it includes material realities that are. And she wants to understand the relationship between them. And um, for her, the relationship is um, dialectical. I would say... Um, the the way in which she has a religious turn in her late 20s, um, she's about 28 years old, and she begins to have a series of religious experiences that um, cause her to begin in her, her um, notebooks, which is where she's putting most of her thinking, a serious kind of experimental, exploratory thinking. It's being recorded in notes in or her notebooks. And she um, begins turning to religious language, language of God, language of um, the supernatural, uh, language of uh, the, the soul and its uh, sin, the sinfulness of the soul. Uh, and all of this would have been foreign to the early Simone Weil, the Simone Weil who was writing very voluminously in her 20s and even her teens. She's, she started writing early and she just kept on writing and writing. It was almost as though um, 
she knew that her vocation was as a thinker who was taking on the primary problems of late modern existence um, with just an open mind, a brave and bold spirit, um, courage, and, um, and um, a, a set of, um, of, of ideas that she was working with, that she accepted as um, valuable. And um, so it began with a focus in the 20, in her 20s, it began with a focus on labor. Uh, it was more a focus on what human beings do have the power to take into their own hands and do have the power to change about the world. You know, very Marxist in a way. She loved Marx for his analyses of um, what has happened historically and uh, the, the socio-political realities. Um, but she flawed Marx for his um, solutions to those problems. She thought that he was, um, in the end, kind of um, dreaming of some, you know, fantasy uh, outcome um, where the proletariat would um, win the day one day. Uh, she didn't buy it. <laughs> she thought that these very forces that he's analyzing um, are not so easily overcome. And indeed, if we look around the world today, we see a lot of those same forces still strangling life on earth um, very actively, as strongly as ever before. And in that sense, we need Weiss early thinking more than ever before. But as she got into her late 20s, as I said, she made this turn to away from the question of what can we do with our small but real human powers to... Um, to rearrange the social order, to fight the good fight politically, uh, to uh, ameliorate human suffering, to um, address um, the needs of the post-war uh, post and late modern era, all of those things. Uh, she wrote a long essay just before her death um, addressing what should France be doing after the defeat of Hitler. And she wants to hold her nation responsible um, for all of its um, failings um, before, during, and after the war um, as a way of taking responsibility. She said, let us look ourselves in the mirror and see all that we've been doing wrong as a nation um, in order to start getting on the right track. And that book in French, it's called L'Enracinement, which means that it's translated in English, the need for roots. Mm. But what it really means is in French is um, um, rootedness or enrootedness, enrooting yourself, um, L'Enracinement. And um, so that's a, a, a book very important for our time. Uh, a lot of what she's analyzing there remains true. And that's more the public spirited, socially engaged Simone Weil. Still at the end of her life, you see that. Uh, but the religious thinker, which is not, of course, not unrelated. It's, she's wholly, um, all of this makes sense together. But um, when you really go deeply into the religious thinking, it's almost like um, another domain. Um, where her concern is not, not any longer with human powers and how we can ameliorate um, the evils of the social order and the evils of 
politics and so on. And she's beginning to ask, um, what is the responsibility of the individual soul um, in this world of uh, uh, the radical poverty of the creature? Because in a very deep sense, despite all her concern for the social and the political, which was very strong, uh, finally she felt the only way to take responsibility is individual. The only way to, um, to find truth is individual. She makes the point at one point that um, you, you know, two people can't add two plus two. Uh, it's 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 the one person or the other or both who add two plus two as a as a as their intellectual faculty is able to do that um, and and often you try to ask a group to add two plus two you're never going to get there if you've ever had a committee meeting to try to accomplish something you'll know what I mean so she's saying that um, the the individual faculty of thought is the um, bastion of freedom, of uh, truth, and of, um, of judgment of value. Um, and we can't count on groups. We can't count on the social beast. She calls it the social aspect, the great beast, um, because um, it's, it's so re reliably goes wrong. It so reliably goes in the wrong direction. And does bad things um, and does not understand. Um, and so we need the individual to understand, to um, seek the truth. And so as she's um, trying to understand the role of the individual um, in the most ultimate sense, she becomes a religious thinker. The role of the individual is to take responsibility for their place in the cosmos. Mm. Um, and, to one, and, and a huge part of that is understanding what is the nature of reality? What is this world that I'm in? What does it mean? How do I read it? And so um, she really um, understands this hermeneutic operation. The religious turn is a hermeneutic operation to understand the nature of the cosmos the nature of human existence, to face it, to accept it, to live in accord with it. And that's when she turns to an understanding of God. Now, it's a very um, non-traditional, unorthodox understanding of God in many ways, in many respects. I mean, if you take her theology and put it side by side with most traditional Christian theologies, there are several points at which you would have to say that she's a, um, a heretic. Uh, she's heretical. She's, let's say, unorthodox. Um, for example, that we are born in sin. Um, not that, sorry, not just that we're born in sin the way Augustine speaks of us being born with original sin, but that we are um, actually um, created sinful, that God created us sinful. That's an unorthodox, let's say, her heretical position. Um, and she um, um, doesn't mind that. She doesn't, it doesn't bother her to be um, rethinking 
the dogmas or doctrines of the church and giving them a new spin. She thinks that the church has gone wrong in so many respects itself that there's a duty to rethink what is our relationship to the dogmas of the church, to the doctrines of the church? What is the right relationship with these teachings and these um, powerful mysteries, she calls them? Um, and it's our duty to uh, take them up and think for ourselves and not just bow down to whatever the church happens to say about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so that's another way in which she has a quasi-Protestant um, character as a religious thinker. There are many moments in which she sounds like Luther um, or, um, or many of the late uh, medieval thinkers like... Um, like Meister Eckhart, or um, the author of the Theologia Germanica, the German Luther published it, but it's written long before him. Um, It's an anonymous author of the Theologia Germanica. Very powerful text. Uh, Simone Weil sounds like she's lifting some of her ideas out of that text, which was very influential on Luther. But my explanation in the book for why she sounds so Protestant is that she's actually Jansenist. (laughs) And the last chapter of the book is talking about Jansenism as the background to her religious ideas because they're very dialectical in the way that Luther's ideas are dialectical. And of course, Luther's whole background in late medieval nominalism and the, the, the rise of a God who is a kind of an unknown God, a looming chaos, um, not chaos, but um, abyss, a looming abyss, a God, a God who's um, unknowable for Luther except through Christ. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's Luther building on a, a, a tradition already going back a couple of centuries. Um, and so it's not like he invented it, but he's the one who brought it into the world of, um, you know, of uh, early modern Europe, and and made it a doctrine accepted by millions. Um, and then, of course, the Reformation took those ideas to new places. Um, so Simone Weil, in many ways, sounds like um, a reforming, uh, a, a reformed um, Protestant thinker. Uh, but the way I understand that is that she's absorbing these ideas in their Catholic form from thinkers like Pascal. And there's even a a way in which Descartes reflects this tradition. And the whole Jansenist uh, background um, was, Paris was one of the hotspots for Mm. that whole line of um, theologies of, of, you know, and again, it's uh, within traditional French Catholicism, it's a heretical tendency, Mm. a neo-Augustinian, um, dangerously, um, uh, dangerously flirting with heresies. Mm-hmm. So she takes a Cartesian dualism, if you will, and it becomes dialogical. So there's this thought and extension, mind, body, and I'm assuming that what little freedom human beings have, I mean, you talk about it in terms of consent, 
She does, but, yes. But it's also, I would imagine, it has something to do with the capacity of thinking. And this yes. is part of this larger project of thinking our place in the world. Yes, absolutely. We're this tiny speck in the universe, but we have this power of thought that's universal. So in a, in a way, we are, uh, despite our weakness, our, in a world of external forces, uh, just as you said, the extensio of Descartes, this, this world governed by laws of force and uh, push and shove and uh, movement. And um, despite their vulnerability um, as conditioned beings within those forces, we have this infinite universal power of thought. And that's what we need to use to take responsibility uh, to understand the forces of the world, to understand our place in the universe, and then to live rightly based on that depth of understanding um, and to basically make our understanding universal when we have a strong tendency, what she means by original sin, her version of it, not a, it's not Augustine's version. It's not that Adam and Eve were created uh, sinless and basically perfect and then there was a fall and original sin was like a, a, a botching of the original plan she actually sees god creates us sinful it creates us um with a inverted understanding of things and we have to go through a conversion she says that puts us back in right order with the way things are um and what that ends up meaning is we basically have a choice between power and love. Mm. And your response to being a vulnerable creature uh, characterized by an absolute poverty, your response to that can be to grab all the power you can get. And that is the response a lot of people have. Like, you know, the Hobbesian view that we, life is just a quest for power after power. Um, you see that in the world around you in various forms, financial, economic, political. Um, you, you saw that in her era with the rise of Hitler, you know, this kind of quest for power after power, um, Stalin, and so on. Uh, and obviously for they, that's the wrong response. <laughs> That's the res response that's, the, uh, that's taking the, the sinful outlook, which is to, uh, to seek power, to become like God in the sense of God's power. Mm -hmm. um, that's, the, that's just expanding the sin to blot out the, the world. Um, it's a, a absolutely nihilistic and destructive. Um, so the, the proper response is to invert that, and instead of seeking power, to seek love. And what you do is actually reduce, you, you um, come to understand that you have no power, literally no power. And to reduce your demand for power, your desire for power, to renounce power, to renounce, uh, to, she uses words like abdication. And her big term for this is decreation. When we elect, and consent to decreate ourselves, 
what we're doing is renouncing that little bit of power that we actually have um, and saying, um, in order to see justly, in order to have a universal view, I'm, I'm um, renouncing my claim on life and I'm going to take a God's eye view, which is a universal view, seeing all things in their true relations without inserting myself and my needs into that vision. I'm taking myself out of the equation. I'm making myself nothing in order to be, she says, equal to God. Now, how is it that God is equal to nothing? Well, she asserts that again and again in her religious thought. What does that mean? She speaks of the void. And this is one of the most powerful concepts in her work. It's very distinctive, distinctive of her thought, the way she uses this term. It's much more a question of um, a spiritual void, not a material void here. We're not talking about a vacuum in nature. We're talking about a spiritual void. And the power of this is to say, um, when I reach out and try to assert my power in the world, where it reaches a limit, the void begins. Um, for me, um, I experience everything that manifests the limits of my power and the conditioned nature of my being. I experience that as void. Some examples, you know, you apply for a promotion and you don't get it. You feel void. You, uh, you seek to marry someone and they are not interested in you. You feel void. You, um, you wanted badly to achieve some personal goal and you fail miserably at it. Void. A loved one dies. You feel void. And the void is what we experience at the limits of our power every time. <laughs> Even when we experience hunger, you could say, you're, you're hungry for lunch and you just ate a few hours ago, but you feel the void. You feel the threat, uh, the limit of, of your being. Uh, if I don't eat something, you know, I'm going to be going hungry. Um, and she believes that we um, have this very poor capacity to accept our existence as a hunger, as a hunger for reality, a hunger for completion. And we have a difficulty um, because, because we have hands and because we have certain physical powers and mental powers, we want to use those like through our technologies to grab the world and empower ourselves. But she believes that the spiritual response is to uh, diminish your power and to, in a sense, go quiescent and ask um, for illumination from what she calls the supernatural. Um, now, this, we use the word supernatural to refer to all kinds of things in outer space, alien, aliens with special powers and stuff. She doesn't mean supernatural in that sense. She simply means by supernatural above the natural. So it's something outside the natural world. Uh, so you, again, the extensio of Descartes as a concept helps, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the world around about us that we experience through our bodies. That's the natural world. It's the world of forces that, 
that rise and fall, mountains are born, mountains wash away, um, and so on. The earth, uh, uh, planet Earth is born, planet Earth goes into destruction, and so on. You know, with enough time, everything under, under the sun and beyond comes to an end. These are the forces at work in the actual cosmos. And so this is the Cartesian extensio, this um, realm of forces and powers that balance each other finally. And she, she calls this the realm of necessity. What's distinctive about necessity that the good is absent from necessity, the, the absolute good. Now there are relative goods, uh, you know, the way that nature has arranged itself. Um, you suddenly see that flowering tree and you're just absolutely struck with the beauty of existence. Um, and that's one of the graces that is that in this realm of force where everything is conditional, there is nonetheless beauty. There is the moments for one person, one set for another person, another set, but we experience moments of beauty and we long for our existence to be totally fulfilled with that, to be absolutely beautiful. But what we come up against is, a world of misery and suffering and torture and death and genocide and um, we don't we don't have any power to to make the world other than that we we have a very limited power to act and it's our duty to act to the extent we have the power uh, to make the world more just to the extent we have that power to save a soul, to give a piece of bread to a starving person. It's our duty if we feel it as a duty. Uh, but there's, some, there's a real limit to how much we can change the world to suit our longing for the good because mm. the world is constituted by necessity. And this is where her theory of creation is very uh, unorthodox also. Um, there's the traditional notion, say, uh, by someone like Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, that God creates the world out of his power, that God wills the world into existence. He makes a decision to create the world and does this out of his power as an omnipotent creator. That's the traditional view in Christianity and in Judaism and in Islam. They sees the creation by God in very different terms, in more dialectical terms, that God, to create the world, had to withdraw himself and allow a realm to exist that's other than God. And not only other than God, but void of God. You know, imagine something. You've got God who's like all things, a, a total plenitude of being, nothing lacking. So when God withdraws that plenitude of himself to create the world, he's creating a space of void. And the way Simon Weil characterizes the creation, it's God shackling himself, uh, tying his hands behind his back and limiting his powers in order that something other than himself can exist. And that's the world that suffers the reign of necessity where necessity reigns instead of the good. 
if if good reigned in our world, we wouldn't exist <laughs> because everything would be so fulfilled. We'd be right back to God again. We would be God. <laughs> there would be nothing but God. God had to withdraw, create a realm of void, fill that realm with uh, conditioned necessity for any creatures to exist. And yet we can find places where this thinking obtains with other folks, Isaac Luria, yes. or the Kenosis, right. Right. and even some, I would say, some panentheistic thinkers who are emphasizing love. But do we know where, it's one of the things I love about your book is you take on all the people that speculate that this is this and this is that, this is Gnostic, so on. <clears throat> do we have a sense of where, how she came to that sense? Of God emptying himself and and this this realm being one of void? Not really. I mean, we can't pinpoint it. Uh, many people have studied the question. I haven't focused on studying this question per se, so I'm kind of trusting those scholars. I read what I could get my hands on about um, where this notion came from, how she came across it, or how she came to it. And I don't think that we can say that she read Luria. Had she heard of Luria? Well, she doesn't mention him, I don't think. If I'm, I, I, I could even be mistaken about that, but I don't think that she mentions him anywhere in her work. Uh, don't quote me on that. Um, and of course she read Schelling, who in many ways reflects this um, tradition of the, um, the um, the self-necessitation of God um, mm -hmm. as a counterpoint to, the, to his goodness. Um, and um, so some people uh, point to Schelling, some people point to Luria, um, or they may have been just a, an exposure to the general idea in conversations with, uh, with uh, others, um, you know, these highly educated people that she was surrounded with during her school years and after, um, we don't really know. But certainly it does resemble Luria's theory very closely. And of course she was Jewish in background. She was um, in many ways anti-Jewish and in ways that are, you know, potentially very offensive. Um, if you take offense, it's offensive. <laughs> if you try to see her in her context and say, well, her anti-Judaism really was um, symptomatic of her intellectual class and strata in France of, at the time, everybody was anti-Jewish. <laughs> everybody was anti-Semitic to a degree in France at that time. Um, and some people see her as defensive about her Judaism or her Jewish background. Um, I don't really go there and speculate about it very much. I just, I want to face up to the extent to which she was anti-Jewish and not cover that over by any means and see it as a blind spot that she really sought to understand other religious traditions with great um, attraction to them, with great um, attention to them. But she had a blind spot with Judaism that she just, she, she wouldn't tolerate it. She wouldn't listen to it. She wouldn't recognize that it's a living tradition in her own day, that it was, it's not something that just, it's not just biblical text. Right. She would go to 
Bible and read biblical texts. And those that she loved, she tended to attribute to something, some, some other people, like right. Job must be an old uh, Egyptian tale or, you know, everything she loved about the, the Hebrew scriptures, she tended to attribute to uh, earlier peoples or Near Eastern traditions or something other than the Jews. And then everything negative about the Hebrew Bible, she um, blamed the Jews, you know, like um, castigated them for. And I think it's really uh, incredibly unfair given that her extremely, um, uh, what's the word, Um, searching, uh, moral standards her, her standards for the pure being purely moral are certainly a heritage of uh, of Judaism of the of the Jewish teachings of the teachings of the prophets and the um, you know there there's such um, powerful witness in that tradition that was then taken up into Christianity m- much of it which is where she gets it and then she calls it Christian not Jewish is that fair? Is that fair? How much Christianity would we have without Judaism? Right. <laughs> if right. any. And she doesn't do justice to that strong root structure that made Christianity possible, including, of course, Jesus and Paul. And so, so much of early Christianity is just directly a flowering of Judaism. Um, so uh, she was in denial about that. She was a sort of Marcionite. Yeah. Um, where she wanted to purify the Bible of, of Jewishness. Um, it's, to me, it's just nonsense. She was deeply mistaken about all of this. Uh, but that's the And it was largely because she, she didn't have actively Jewish religious friends, uh, and she didn't have exposure to those traditions. And she was just basically picking up the the uh, atmosphere of her time. It was just in the air to be, to, to see things this way, um, unless you yourself were Jewish. Um, yeah. And so um, she didn't, and this was a case where she didn't rise above her time. Um, in most other cases she did. <laughs> yeah. So just getting back to this, uh, taking a little more psychological turn, that human beings cannot accept their, their their limited nature and she talks about rather than do that we have a decided preference for what she calls the imagination which i sometimes think that's a little unfortunate i would rather she had used the term fantasy but either or um and therefore in order to overcome our our propensity for imagining we need to cultivate attention could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a great um, central concept of her thinking, too. I'm glad you bring it up. Um, you're right about imagination. Um, she sometimes uses the term very negatively um, and sometimes very positively. And you have to recognize in the one case she's talking about illusion, uh, letting your imagination create illusions. And she uses the word illusion a lot. So that's uh, definitely um, one of the ways in which we try to take power and assert ourselves is through creating a ersatz reality, she says. Ersatz meaning false, phony. 
we create around ourselves the phony reality um, because we are defect, de defending ourselves, protecting ourselves from the reality that causes us suffering. And in the most extreme form, causes us affliction. Um, affliction is her very strong word for the most severe forms of suffering, uh, which would, uh, one paradigm, uh, paradigm of that would be uh, Jesus on the cross, crying out to God um, in absolute abject affliction. Um, the word in French is malheur, um, absolute, um, sort of a kind of like um, being swallowed up in evil is the, is the notion of mm. being swallowed up with, with no remaining resource, so completely in the hands of evil. Um, that's the way to think about affliction. Um, delivered to uh, evil, delivered into the hands of evil. Um, so what is the role of attention here? We are always subject or potentially subject to this deliverance into evil. Even the, uh, the Lord's Prayer prays to be delivered from that power over us that's always waiting in the wings. The wolf is always at the door. And it's true of every single living creature, uh, human and non-human, the, the wolf is at the door at all times. Uh, our, this, this small speck of reality that we are can be snuffed out. We are powerless. Um, and so uh, we, we, our, our imaginative powers are used to create an ersatz reality um, and it's only when that ersatz reality itself disappoints us rudely uh, that we uh, suddenly are thrust into the void. We understand our powerlessness and we have a choice then to either face the truth and start paying attention to the way things really are or to try to create more illusions to fill the gap um, wilder and wilder illusions. They say that Hitler toward the end was having these megalomaniac, you know, like he was just off the deep end. Why? Because he had nothing left. Yeah. So it was like either off the deep end or suddenly draw back and face the reality that really is real. And, um, you know, many choose the megalomaniac path because it's less painful than facing reality. So the role of attention is to deliver reality to us. Uh, by our own um, free will. Um, we, to pay attention takes an enormous amount of spiritual energy. Not so much physical energy, like say, you know, we're running a machine and we're tired, we're riding a bicycle, and we're tired and we're running out of physical energy, we've been riding for hours, we need a break. Um, that's, that's one form of energy, it's the physical energy. But she thinks that there's a spiritual energy that's a, a different ball game. Um, and spiritual energy actually, um, when it's functioning um, with great spiritual power, it's almost infinite. At the highest level, spiritual energy um, is like a food for us. And to the extent that we are able to sustain this energy and pay attention to things, their actual reality, the way they truly are, not the way we would fantasize them to be. Um, the, world, the world as it really is, is delivered to us. We understand necessity. We understand that we're nothing. 
we understand a virtual death of ourselves because we are as good as dead. Uh, life is a lie, only death is true, she writes. Now that's an extreme statement, but she wants you to feel it. it it's an existential statement. Um, because in, in 50 years or 100 years, it is going to be true, whatever your age right now. <laughs> you, you, uh, death will be true. And um, she, she believes that um, to the extent that we can uh, see the world as it truly is, we can be just. We can be, um, our view of things can be undistorted. And even more important, we can start playing the role of a kind of God on earth, a Christ likeness, okay? So God, the limitation of God is when God creates the world, his hands are tied. He can't intervene. What happens if he intervenes? We, we, creaturely life is evaporated like water on a stone, she says. So God loves, she says, as an emerald is green. God's consistency is that he stays, he, he's, he, he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. This is not a moral universe. This is a universe uh, consistently um, maintained by necessity, um, but the good is absent. The good is God. God is absent. God does not exist. If you start talking about God as existing, you're really messing it up. You, you don't understand anything from Simone Weil's point of view. This is, again, what's really, um, uh, un, say, un, um, un, um, sorry, uh, unorthodox, um, you could say heretical, um, that it's not possible to affirm God's existence but it is possible to affirm God's absence. And it's God's absence from the world that allows the world to exist, that allows the creature to exist. And we, um, we are in this world, part of this world, able to um, understand that, understand why God withdrew, why the world is under the reign of necessity, that ultimately all of this is an act of love by God, that we exist. Now, it's not about us, actually. If you read her theology carefully, um, we can understand ourselves as part of this drama, but it's actually God's own drama that God, being perfect, being a, surp uh, a, um, a super... Uh, what's a superabundant reality in himself, um, had to manifest his love. He couldn't just be himself eternally and be satisfied with this superabundance. And this is also an a, a, a idea in Meister Eckhart, that this superabundance had to overflow. It had to manifest itself by giving itself to another. That's why the creation of the world. Now that's often found in traditional theology, this notion of God's superabundance pouring out and creating the world. Um, but she understands that pouring out as a holding back, not that a, a, a certain amount of God's goodness pours into that space. No, it, God actually has to withhold his goodness, create a space of absence, of void, in order for something other than God to be, in order to give himself to that. 
So how does she look at the world? The world is that place in the reign of the void, in the realm of void, where God is manifesting his love through his absence. And she understands this as something God had to do because he's love. He had to manifest himself, she writes, across an infinite distance, mm -hmm. which is very like a Kierkegaardian notion of the um, absolute qualitative distinction between God and the world. Uh, mm -hmm. Very similar notion there, um, that God had to travel an infinite distance. And how does he do that? He crucifies himself. And that's where the suffering comes in, that God himself goes into the void as his son, enters into the void as a creature who elects to do the will of God perfectly on earth, um, to be that other that, um, that um, allows the love to cross an infinite distance and be real, be a real manifestation. It's not a fantasy. It's not something that never happened. It's something that's really manifest in history, in time, uh, that God becomes uh, crucified, self-crucified. Uh, and so the drama between father and son um, is one of absolute um, um, negation, in a sense. So it's in Christ, God, God undergoes his own absolute negation. Um, and that, that self-negation is a process that's always there. It's all... It, this is where he's different from some death of God thinkers who think of uh, there's a certain annihilation of God that happens and then God is maybe transformed into something else. But, but Simo Bey is not thinking the death of God and then a change to some new reality. She's thinking this crucifixion of God is ongoing always. In, as long as there is time, this crucifixion is going on. And the world is the cross. Hmm. Um, and so what can we do? We can become Christ-like. When there's a starving person, God can't reach down and give that person bread. But we have the power to do that. We can. So we can act as God's lieutenant on earth, so to speak, taking the place of God and acting with a divine, um, with supernatural love. Um, if we get out of the way. So we have to get our own, we have to get our own um, illusions and falseness and, and, um, and uh, lust for power. We have to clear all of that out, become nothing in order to be able to refract supernatural love in the world. We, we understand the truth of things we're able to understand that God, this absence, this suffering, this void is actually the love of God that we're feeling. And then we can refract that and express that love to others who are suffering by being that hand of God um, in the moment that, he, that God the Father cannot be. It's one of the most <clears throat> arresting things when she talks about traversing these infinite distances, as she says, beauty is indicative of that, that there's something from the supernatural realm that makes it all the way here, but also that in extreme affliction, some people 
can still love and receive love. Not all, some are destroyed by affliction. And it seems that that is something that was um, a lived experience for her. And I also think that that point is perhaps more than any, anything that we've talked about, the most relevant to a recovery community because either they, they're, they're desperately in need of that experience or they've had it. Um, it's very hard to talk about, but you know, my own self, I had an experience where I'd lost everything. I'm in heroin withdrawal. I lost everything that I thought anyone might love me for. That was, and that's I think the realm of something like imagination. And yet some sort of love came into my life through another human being, actually, despite all that. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Um, I know that that's a hell of a question. It's a great question. I mean, this is for Vey, this is the whole, this is the real core. This is getting to the real deal. <laughs> Let me just read a passage in which she describes um, affliction, um, you know, the, the furthest extreme of suffering and um, human thought, this is Ve. human thought is unable to acknowledge the reality of affliction. To acknowledge the reality of affliction means saying to oneself, I may lose at any moment through the play of circumstance over which I have no control through the, um, anything whatsoever that I possess including those things that are so intimately mine that I consider them as being myself. There is nothing that I might not lose. It could happen at any moment that what I am might be abolished and replaced by anything whatsoever of the filthiest and most contemptible sorts. And I think when you hit bottom, you're that filthiest, contemptible being that's still there. Um, and that's the void. That's the crucifixion. That's the absence of God. But the funny thing is about Ve, that very absence is the presence of God in the negative. And she says, hold on. Hold on in that dark night. And you will find, if you only understand, this is the hand of God's love. This, this negation is the hand of God's love in which you are resting right now. Your whole existence is being sustained in that void. And um, it doesn't matter that loss. You can recover from that. That loss is just the truth of things. It's the truth of the universe. It's the truth of God. And that God chose that for himself. That's the, the message is finally, God chose the cross. You know, we're not joking there. You know, the most extreme, horrendous, abominable form of suffering um, chose for himself, elected the cross as a way of manifesting his love. And traveling the furthest distance. And what that means in Vais theology is 
There's no void. There's no negative that you can go that God isn't there, that that isn't God's reality. It, it's, you're in God's bosom when you're in that void. That's her teaching. And, uh, you know, it's a tough one. It's a stark one. But if you can feel it, and if it's real to you, it's incredibly salvific. It's, in, it's, uh, it's so, uh, um, makes you whole. Suddenly, in all that emptiness, it makes you whole. Mm. Because there's nothing, um, what happens in the void is you have the fullness of God, but in the negative. That doesn't mean it's not the fullness of God. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's, the, it's precisely that fullness of God that God elected specially to, to see to, uh, to, to see to that his self-denial went to that point of voiding himself. Right. And so when we go to God, she says, we have to go to the God who crucified himself. We don't go to the God in power. We don't go to the God who's uh, su super abundance. We go to the God who's on the cross. And that's what Luther says too, actually, which is yeah. so interesting. His Theologia Crucis is theology of the cross. It's saying, um, don't look to become like God in his power. You, you have to look to the cross and become like God in his suffering and God in his um, nakedness and his poverty. I can see why she's such a challenge because in the same constellation of ideas, she sounds so much like St. John of the Cross and the Carmelites. Yes. yes, and she loved St. John, yes. God's absence is his mode of presence. Yeah. So it seems now you're in a much better position to, to comment on this than I am, but it seems that this kind of um, theological nihilism, if you will, I don't know what to call it, mm -hmm. has a certain currency right now because of people like Zizek or or his reading of Chesterton or Peter Rollins or people like that. Mm -hmm. Am I correct in that? Yes. Yeah. So that seems like that's a big opening to have dialogue with um, all manner of, of um, thinkers and disciplines. Yes. Do you feel that Simone is make, beginning to make it? I, I mean, my reading of her, so I got acquainted with her in my 20s, and I certainly was not equipped with this. And I've been kind of walking with her off and on for 30 years. And I only noticed at a certain point that there was, there, there was the secondary literature in English, which I read a lot of. But I felt like, and maybe, I felt like it's like the world had to catch up to her or something. That she literally... Yeah, okay. Yeah, it still hasn't. I, I think um, there is more and more literature being published. Uh, but the problem is, I think uh, with uh, Simone Bay is um, if she's just taken up in an academic style, there's a certain falsification that goes on. And you can't just treat her like another academic topic, uh, like you know, I did Hegel and then I did, you know, and, right. I, and then I did, <laughs> no, I did Bay, you know, it, yeah. it, it, it's, it's just, um, you have to really um, be ready to write in a non-academic style, I think, too, because she, um, for all that, you know, she, it's intellectually um, 
um, you know, the, 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 her rich educational background is always uh, visible and her reading and her um, conversations with others, you know, you, you can really feel that she was, um, um, you know, capable of, of academics, but she was not looking to um, the academic world to um, understand her. She was really looking for, uh, it's an existential calling to read her. And, and the problem is that academics tend to, you know, read the paper at the conference and then go off and have a drink. And there's not like, has anybody suffered for this? Yeah. <laughs> uh, has anybody really paid the price to, so vague to me really much more belongs to a recovery community than it does to the academic world. They're much, a recovery community is much more likely to get her and, and get the benefit than uh, the academic world. Um, and I don't know if my leaving the academic world was um, partly connected with this, maybe, um, but I just think uh, there are real limits to it uh, the, because the reason for pursuing the writing, the, the reading and writing and publishing um, is somewhat compromised, um, you know, publish or perish. And, you know, why are you doing this? Is it to do justice to Simone Weil? Is it to get the deepest level of benefit from Simone Weil? Or is it uh, just another thinker to pick up because she's under-recognized and uh, less explored and might make a good topic for an article or dissertation or book. Um, and, you know, I think that that makes all the difference in how she's written about in how much is, um, is really uh, on the mark in, in uh, discussions of her work. Well, she certainly demands something of you. I mean, in 30 years, or I don't seem longer than that now, this is the most intense conversation I've ever had about Simone Weil. I've had little scraps and this and that, but to, I never, I didn't realize that until this moment. Um, so you're not going to, there's no superficial relationship. There's either a deep relationship or no relationship with her. Um, I think that's very well said, yeah. And I guess what I would ask you at the risk of getting a little personal is what did it do to you to take this on, I would imagine at a relatively young age and just, you know, I, I'm assuming you did this with David Tracy. Uh, yes. David Tracy was my advisor and I'm very grateful for uh, his um, degree of involvement, but frankly, he let me, I wanted to do this on my own and just write it and have him read it and approve it. And that's basically what happened. I mean, I, I didn't work with him. Uh, you know, he was a very busy person, first of all, deeply in demand. 
And um, but every moment when I really needed good feedback from him, he was there and he gave excellent feedback. So I really appreciated him as an advisor. But it wasn't this hand holding thing or getting feedback on drafts. No, I, I just wrote it, <laughs> gave it to him. He said, "Great," and uh, that was that was. Um, except uh, early on when I was uh, working on the dissertation proposal, that's when he was uh, incredibly important. He intervened on what would have probably taken 10 years to do. And he said, if I, I suggest you carve this way down and just do one small piece of it. And then, you know, think in terms of other books and other projects in the future to, to work this out because uh, what you have here, it's a 10 year project. And he was so right, you know, when you're young and you don't have experience with writing a first book, um, that was superb advice. It was a crucial intervention for me. It saved me a lot of probably, I might have never finished my, my um, PhD program. I might never, never have moved on. I would still be haunting the halls of the University of Chicago, a shadow of my former self. <laughs> I don't know. But what did it do to you? How did it? How did it leave you? Or, uh, uh, it, 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 only, it only helped me. Uh, nothing um, for me was difficult about uh, reading Simone Bay. It was only salvific. I would say it was only a balm uh, because um, for me, um, she helped to bring a, a, an order. She says in her Malvasiment, uh, the need for roots that book, um, which is a very late, this is actually her last long writing. Um, she's, she, in the beginning of that, she talks about the, the um, fundamental needs of the human soul. And one of those fundamental needs is a need for order. It's actually the first one, a need for order. We cannot function without putting things to some degree in order. And that includes um, an architecture of the soul an architecture of the intellect. Um, and even if you can take it, you can say it's continually in construction, it's continually changing, fine, but you need order, you need, um, you, it's a logic, it's a structure. Um, and um, she helped me structure things so that I could make sense of, um, you know, the sufferings of existence and the, um, the, the um, all that's very difficult to accept uh, when you're young, and um, I, I was always with her against illusion. I I don't I don't want to suffer illusions. I just want to if it's a, a hard and stark truth of things, I I want that rather than illusion. And that's not to say that we don't all. She thought she herself suffers certain illusions. She's she actually doesn't believe we can fully escape illusion. Um, but um, to be responsible and live responsibly, uh, we have to fight it as best we can and not um, have, you know, great, great um, layers upon layers of illusion that we're living in because uh, then we're, you know, she, another need of the human soul is reality. Just as we need order, we also need reality. When we love something, we need it to be real and not an illusion. Mm. Um, mm. Partly because if it bursts, we're left with nothing. You know, it, 
illusions burst, you know, sooner or later, that illusion's going to come crashing down. If it's an illusion about yourself and your own powers, or you're, you're suave and sophisticated, and then the truth comes out, <laughs> you realize, I'm such a loser. <laughs> you know, in a way, she has a very comforting message. It doesn't matter that you're a loser. You're loved by God. It doesn't matter, you know, being a loser, that's a social judgment. You don't need that. The social judgments are evil. That's so saving. You know, her negative view of sociality is so helpful to me because I, um, it's a little bit like the way Thoreau can help you, like, put aside public opinion. Who cares? Who cares what people think? What do you think? And as long as you're striving not to be deluded, not to have illusions, striving uh, for some kind of pure understanding of the good and evil, uh, at least you're on the path. Uh, most of society, it's not. It's not on that path at all. And um, it needs it. It, it. it would benefit from it. Um, and you can try to bring it to society, but it's always only the individual who's going to see that truth and try to bring it to society and, and kickstart that amelioration that hopefully sometimes happens. Mm. Um, but, but in the end, uh, society's the great beast, and um, it's just full of this sense. Um, let me read another quick passage here um, about um, society. I hope I marked it. She writes about sin and the prestige of force. Owing to the fact that the whole soul has not managed to know and accept human misery, we think there must be a difference between human beings. And consequently, we fail to be just either by drawing a distinction between our advantage and that of other people, or else by marking a preference for certain individuals from among other people. This comes from the fact that we do not know that human misery represents a constant and irreducible quantity and exists in each man or woman in the largest possible form and that greatness comes from a one and only God, so that every man is identical with every other man. Okay, so she sees a radical equality of all. Why? Because we're all equally um, marked by this absolute poverty. All equally. We're all bound for death. We're all potentially any moment subject to this um, affliction and suffering and uh, annihilation and that makes us radically equal and um at one point she also writes about her jealous you know she was jealous of her older brother who always seemed to have this intellectual power she felt that she lacked and later in life she wrote about intelligence as someone of great intelligence it's like the difference between having a large or a small prison cell (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't matter that you're charming, you're, that you're good looking, that you're in, super intelligent, that you're a genius, that you're a, a, a homeless person on the street, that you're a recovering um, addict. What, what does it matter? Uh, you have the same place in the universe as everybody else. 
you're a little piece of God. And you're, you have the honor of being part of God's crucifixion, part of his decision to love, um, absolutely, and without any reservation of himself. Um, and that drama is what is the stuff of your existence. And if you can feel that, um, she does see salvation as the ultimate uh, vocation of the soul, that the, the salvation comes more likely in the void than in a time of plenitude. Uh, mm -hmm. when you're full of yourself, when you're full of your powers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been fantastic. That's Bay. <laughs> well, you're mediating Bay. Um, and I think it'll be much appreciated by our audience. Great. So. I'd like to say hello to everyone and uh, wish you the best in these tough times with the pandemic on top of everything that was already so difficult about life in the United States. Um, you know, we need uh, compassion more than ever today. We need empathy. We need the powers that Simone Weil's thinking is trying to um, uh, absolutely maximize, which is this sense of the radical equality of all souls, the power of God in the void, the power of salvation in the void, um, and the, the absolute utter beauty of compassion, um, that this is what we exist for. And probably the best way to see your own value is to show and experience that compassion toward others. I mean, to, you, you will feel your power as soon as you're able to show compassion to others. Um, it will manifest to you that you have this power of God to to um, give love, give an absolute love and a perfectly pure love to others. And that is your real power as a creature, nothing else. Not, not a career, not a worldly success, um, because that's empty. Um, it's, not, it's not filling the void. It, it's, more, um, it's more stuffing in the void. You know, that, that people feel superior to other people because they have the other night i was eating in a restaurant a post-covid you know situation eating in a restaurant and a, a couple drove up in a mclaren a mclaren automobile that's a two hundred fifty thousand dollar automobile when they open the car doors they go up like wings mm -hmm. and they step out and they pay in the um in the parking meter like everybody else. Do you have some quarters on you? Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty bizarre. But I'm thinking, you drive a McLaren. What does that say about you? What does that say about you? Uh, I don't know. I see a rolling uh, insecurity complex. <laughs> I, I don't know what other people see. Uh, but why did he think that was worth having as his car, uh, he and she together? Uh, because um, we like to believe there are real differences between human beings and that some are inherently superior or they earned a superiority or they, um, they're just of a worthier sort. And, you know, so many societies through history have been this way, the caste system, the, uh, you know, arist aristocratic versus commoner system. We had our own caste system 
until very recently, actually, in Western, in the Western world, this, uh, the aristocratic and the common class. That's still maintained in England. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we, we want to believe this because there's, um, there's a, an illusion of um, being something rather than nothing that comes from that. For the, for the lucky ones, it's very Calvinistic. You know, yeah. in, in Calvinism, you earn your salvation by uh, buying a McLaren, <laughs> showing you have that money, got you're blessed by God with the money to buy that McLaren. That makes you something, it, really something rather than nothing. And you have to manifest that to others so they know it, too. And I just think uh, from the point of view of Simone Weil, man, that's a loser. You just don't understand the first thing about human existence. So that's, I've always found it easy to embrace Vey because it just takes care of so many social, political issues that, um, that I think are a waste of energy, finally. Um, you have to cut to the quick and get rid of all of that superstructure of the, of the, the human perceptions, human judgments, human um, illusions, and, and get to the rock-bottom realities of things. And she is so helpful with that. So if you're starting at the rock bottom, you don't have any illusions. Yeah, that's right. So thank you so much. Thank you, Piers. And blessings to all. Yes. yes. Show compassion to yourself first and then to others. Nothing is more absolutely essential uh, in this world. We will. We'll be in touch. Thank Good. You. Good. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.